0: Luke 19, chapters 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his, his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives... As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, God. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Good morning. So as is clear now, we are taking a break from our series in Philippians to spend time in Easter week. And our goal over this week is simply to walk with Jesus through the events of Easter break today, Palm Sunday, and then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And really, my hope for us is simply that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would see him. Uh, that we would ponder who he is and what we learn about him through these events. So we walk with him afresh. Uh, just to let you know, no like practical application to the next three messages. Okay? I'm not going to give you three good principles to live by. We're simply going to behold Jesus. I was singing this week, there's a great passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul reminds us of the story of Moses at Mount Sinai, you know, when Moses went up the mountain and he spends time with God on the mountain, then he spends time with God in the tent of meeting and he's in the presence of God's glory and when he comes down the mountain, his face is still shining with the glory of God and in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, that's like us as we behold the Lord, Jesus, as we behold him we are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, his spirit begins to transform us so that we become more and more like the person that we're watching. And we've been talking about the Jesus life through Philippians, and, and that's what the Jesus life is all about. It's not just, here's you know, three great principles to live by. It's No, it's about a person, Jesus. It's about seeing him. Following him, and then as we do that, his spirit begins to change us so that we are becoming more and more like him. And so that's our goal this week simply to walk with Jesus and to see him in the fullness of who he is. Uh, I want to just point out at the beginning uh, on the back of your bulletin, uh, we've given you a list of readings of daily. Uh, devotional readings to, to read, hopefully, each morning through this week. And I want to encourage you just to walk through these this week. It's a way for you to walk with Jesus through his final week and to behold your Lord and King, to fix our eyes on Jesus. So that's what we'll be doing all week. Hopefully, you will do that together. Today, we look at the triumphal Entry into Jerusalem, or what is more commonly known as Palm Sunday. Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem the week before he dies. And again, as I said, our goal is to walk with him today as he enters the city. I want to do two things. I want to have us experience this moment, what it may have been like. And then I want us to experience Jesus, to look at his heart, to look at his posture as he walks into the royal city at the last week of his life. So first, let's uh, let's let's experience this moment for a moment for a minute. Uh, a familiar passage for many of you, I recognize. Um, we're in Luke's Gospel right now. Uh, what you wouldn't maybe know because we haven't been reading Luke's Gospel is this chapter nineteen. This represents a climactic moment in the ministry of Jesus. the, the whole narrative has been building to this moment of coming to Jerusalem. It's a, it started 10 chapters ago. In chapter 9, Jesus is doing ministry. Uh, his early ministry is up in the Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem's down in the south. And all the way back in chapter 9, 10 chapters ago, it says this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So after several years of ministry in the north, he resolutely sets his sights south towards the capital city. And then you have 10 chapters in Luke, which we call the travel narrative, where he is on his way to Jerusalem. And he's gathering followers. He's healing people. He's having conversations. He's casting out demons. He's, he's teaching. And, and the, the excitement about him, the, the knowledge of him is building as he goes, and this is now the climactic moment, 10 chapters later, of finally the king coming to Jerusalem, the city of kings, coming to the holy city. And there's all this excitement surrounding what this might mean. And we get all sorts of details in the gospel accounts that capture the excitement. So let's just look at some of the details in Luke's gospel. It begins in verse 28, uh, with this detail, uh, and then in verse 29, uh, about a donkey. That's the first detail we get. And I I was just curious, like six verses on a donkey, that's a lot of biblical ink to spill over a donkey. Like what's about the tying and untying of the donkey and getting this donkey. And it's just a strange way to start a a climactic moment about a donkey. Um, But what you have here is, of course, you see Jesus omniscience, right? He can just like, he knows where the donkey is and what will happen and happens exactly as he said it would. But more importantly, um, Jesus is performing a symbolic act in riding in on a donkey. He has not been traveling on a donkey. He doesn't need a donkey. He is doing it as a symbolic act. And what he's doing in this action of riding on this donkey is he is finally, clearly declaring himself to be the long-awaited king. And he is fulfilling prophecies in the Old Testament, particularly the prophecy of, of Zechariah 9. Let me read it to you. Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph! Oh, people of Jerusalem, that's where he's coming. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea. And so Jesus is in this act saying, I am What Zechariah looked forward to. I am this great king. And yet, of course, he's not quite the king that everyone was expecting. He said, I'm a a gentle king. I'm I'm actually not here to make war on Rome. I'm here to bring peace to the nations. But I am that king. And so this, this coming in would have implications for the people. And you see it in in verse 35, the the people, the disciples, they understand the significance of this. They brought it to Jesus, the donkey. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. So picture him coming in and people are taking off their cloaks, spreading that. That is a a gesture that is uh, honoring him as the coming king. Uh, Luke doesn't include the detail of palm branches, but the other gospel writers talk about they're also waving these palm branches, right? Another, another uh, acknowledgement that the king is coming and it's a celebration. The king is finally here. Look at verse 37. I love this. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They've been following him. They're excited. And they're shouting. They're praising. It's a a loud moment. It's a celebratory moment. Here's what they're saying. Look at verse 38. Blessed is he, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're actually quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. There's just lots of Old Testament undercurrents in this scene. They're quoting from Psalm 118. Let me read to you part of Psalm 118. Okay, just uh, so Psalm 118 was a royal psalm, right? It was it was used when a king was. Crowned king, or it was used in there was a. They would have an annual sort of reenthronement ceremony where the king would be acknowledged annually as the king, and he would come in through the gates of of uh, Jerusalem, and and everyone would celebrate him as king. That, that's when this psalm was was sung and read in Israel's history. I'm giving you just parts of it here. Shouts of joy resound in the tents of the righteous, and then here's the king speaking as he comes into the city. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to God. And now the people again speaking. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You've heard that one before? Uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be gladdened. You've probably sung that one before. Hosanna. Hosanna means save us now. Oh, Lord, grant us success. And here's the quote. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king entering the city. From the house of the Lord, we bless you with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. All right, so this this beautiful picture of the king being brought into the city. And there's all these echoes of that, all right? So you've got this just very electric moment. It's a climactic moment, this dynamic moment. There's sense of excitement, sense of expectation for what Jesus is going to do. There's a sense of nationalism, of patriot, of, of Jewish patriotism. Okay, so the closest modern day thing we would have would be like uh, inauguration day when the new president is, is coming down the streets, right, to the Capitol. He's got his entourage. The American flag's being waved. There's God bless America signs, right? And, and at least half the nation is really excited for whoever's, whoever's going to you know, come into the Oval Office. But that, that sense of excitement and, and uh, fervor, that's, that's, that's the closest thing we would have today. So that's the scene. Now let's sit with Jesus today and let's just watch him at work. And I want to consider, what what, what was this moment like for him? Like, What would it have been like to be him in this moment? And I, I imagine... Um, this was a moment of <laughs> I think just great complexity and tension for him, right I mean so many emotions I imagine he was he was feeling he 's coming down he 's being celebrated, and of course he knows what nobody else knows in the crowd, even though he 's told it to him several times. but he knows that just less than a week later he 's going to be hanging on a cross, dying as a common criminal okay. He knows this. That's why he's entering into the city. And no one else knows this. And I think, what an what emotionally complex moment to, to receive all this worship and excitement. And to know that it's genuine. Like, it's genuine worship. It's genuine excitement. Um, but it, it's also based on a profound misunderstanding. <laughs> Right? Of, of who he is, of what, he is, what his role is, what it means for him to be king, what he has come to Jerusalem to do. I was reading this quote this week. Uh, I love this. Everyone who lie in the streets that day had a different reason for w- waving those palm branches. Some were political activists, and they expected Jesus to use his supernatural power to free Israel from Roman rule. Others had loved ones who were sick or dying. They waved branches hoping for physical healing from Jesus. Some were onlookers merely looking for something to do, while others were genuine followers who wished Jesus would establish himself as an earthly king. Jesus was the only one in the parade who knew why he was going to Jerusalem to die. He had a mission while everyone else had an agenda. That's pretty good. Jesus had a mission. Everyone else had their own expectations, their own personal agendas, whether they understood all. And, and what's interesting to me is he, he receives, and knowing all of that, he receives the praise. He, he, he takes it in. And uh, it's one of the first times he does that in the Gospels. Like if you follow him in the early parts of the Gospels, he's always like, he's always telling people to be quiet. Like people, he'll heal people and say, don't tell anybody what I did. They'll try to make him king by force and he'll, you know, kind of slip away. And this is a time where he decides, this is my moment and it's appropriate. For me to to receive this praise and to take it in, even though it is so imperfect and broken and built off of false understandings of who he is. And this is just kind of an aside, but I, I was thinking even today, like Jesus continues to do this. Like we come in here every week and we worship and, and he receives worship across the world every day. And yet that worship is so imperfect and so often half-hearted and so often built on uh, a misunderstanding of the fullness of who he is. And we have our own agendas and our own you know, selfish desires. They're all wrapped up. It's all laced in our worship. And yet he sees all that and he can receive that in all of its you know, imperfections and, and brokenness. I and mean, it's pretty amazing. Well, I want to focus in on, on verse 41 and what follows there and really s- narrow in on Jesus' heart in this passage. I want you to just, let's, let's behold our king together today. Let me read to you verse 41. Oh, I miss sorry, I missed that great, sorry, the 39, I love the interchange in 39 and 40, where some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, you know, teacher, rebuke your disciples, right? It's like, look, look at what the people are, they think you're the Messiah, you know, you got you to you shut this down. He's like, <laughs> hey, if they stop talking, even the stones will cry. It's like, this is my moment. I am the Messiah, and I deserve to be praised, and I will be praised. And he just takes it, and I love that. Uh, but I want to focus on verse 41. So follow along with me. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Let me show you a, a picture. This is, of course, modern-day Jerusalem. This picture, some of you have been there, you've seen this. Uh, This picture is taken from the Mount of Olives where Jesus is. And then you drop down into the Kidron Valley and then you come back up into the city. Uh, This is the Temple Mount, this huge structure. Um, Obviously, you have the Dome of the Rock there now. But um, that Temple Mount, that is the same Temple Mount, the foundations of that, that were there in Jesus' time. That's where the temple is. So this would be the view he would have of the city. And I want you to picture him there. You got all this stuff going on around him. He's coming down into the valley, looking at the city, thinking about the history of this city. And I think especially thinking about the religious leadership of the city of that time. And he just starts crying publicly. <laughs> he's, he's, this is happening in front of everybody. People are watching him cry and he, he voices uh, his grief and pain for the city. And I was thinking this week, I can only find two places in the Gospels where it explicitly says that Jesus cried. And I'm sure he cried a lot more than twice. But we have two examples. Uh, the other example is what? At the raising of who? Lazarus. Of Lazarus, right? Which actually happened only a couple of days before this. Um, but there you have... Jesus' good friend who died, and his sisters Martha and Mary come out, who are good friends of Jesus, and um, they're, die- they're, they're mourning, and, and, and Jesus there is just caught up in the scene, and he's weeping for his friends and the pain and the grief and the reality of death. So he's, he's weeping for his friends in that scene. And it's interesting, this scene, he's looking over the city, and he's actually weeping for his enemies. He's considering their posture, and he's so grieved by their unwillingness to receive him. And here you have him weeping for his enemies. With this great compassion, even for enemies. Let's look at his words. Um, I'll put that up still. Uh, look at verse 42. This is what he says. Again, this is if people are there watching this man cry. He's speaking to the city. And really, what he's, who he's speaking to is the religious leadership of the city. If you, even you, had only known on this day... What would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here's the issue, Jerusalem. If only you knew what would make for peace. I'm offering you terms of peace And you refuse them. If only you recognize the time of God's coming, his visitation. Saying, I am God's son. God is in me. He is coming to you in this moment. This is your great opportunity, Jerusalem. And you don't see it. It's hidden from you. You refuse it. It reminds me of something else he says to the city of Jerusalem earlier in uh, Luke's gospel. Really powerful words. This is Jesus being, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you stone those sent to you, you crucify those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. What a, what a profound image. Oh, I've longed. I like a, like a mother hen that gathers its, her chicks in her, under her wings. That's what I want to do with you. I just want to shelter you, and you refuse it. You will not have it. And if you, you know, we haven't been reading Luke's gospel, but if you were to read the gospel, you you would see um, why they don't accept his terms of peace, why they miss this day. And in short, it's because their hearts are far from God. And I'm speaking especially of the religious leadership of the day. And uh, you just see evidence upon evidence that in the end, their hearts are very far from God. Take a look at uh, verse 45. Look at the next scene that takes place here. When Jesus, he he goes into the temple, uh, you know, (laughs) the temple of God enters the temple of God. It's a profound moment. Uh, He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, uh, what they've done is they've taken God's house, which was supposed to be this place of prayer and genuine worship for everybody. And they are selling, uh, sacrifice. They're upselling people. They're ripping people off. Uh, they're disadvantaging the needy. They're making it hard for people to worship God. So there's, there, there's these hard heart hearts. And what you see is that there's, there's this outward expression of religion and religiosity and morality. Um, but inside they're full of spiritual pride. They're full of spiritual pride. They're full of greed uh, they love the praise of people. They love positions of power. They love wealth. Um, they give all this attention to the outward details of religion, but they, they neglect the deeper matters of justice and mercy and compassion. Their hearts are far from God. And so when the Son of God comes to them with this amazing open heart of compassion, for people, they reject him. They don't want anything to do with him. And Jesus is here seeing all of that in a moment, looking over the city, and he's just moved to tears so I want us to see him today, to, to behold your king, his heart broken for this city uh, that refuses to come to him. And yet that's not all he's doing in this passage, is it? He's not just weeping. <laughs> he's also <laughs> prophesying judgment on the city. I mean, these are pretty strong words. Look at verse 43 again. Take a look. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. That's quite an image. They will not leave one stone on another. He's prophesying judgment, and this prophecy was fulfilled just forty days later, or forty years later, seventy A.D. The Roman army came and surrounded Jerusalem. They besieged the city, and they eventually leveled it to the ground. The temple is destroyed. The temple has never been rebuilt. Two thousand years later, just as Jesus prophesied, the destruction of Jerusalem had happened so Jesus is weeping for the city, but he's also prophesying and pronouncing judgment on the city, like an Old Testament prophet would. I mean, he's right in line with the Old Testament prophets. And he comes and and has this same word of judgment because of the hardness of heart. And look at what he does next. I mean, verse 45, I already read it to you. But the first thing he does is he comes into the temple and he cleanses the place, right? I mean, that's a gnarly scene. Um, some of the other gospels fill in the details. In John's gospel, the, the most crazy detail for me is um, it says when Jesus entered the, t- the temple courts, uh, he took cords and he, he like, weaved together a whip out of cords. And so I, I picture Jesus walking into his father's house with his passion for his father's glory and seeing how that is being completely um, just run over by the people. And he's filled with this righteous anger. I just picture him sitting there making this whip. Going like, oh my gosh, what's he going to do with the whip? And then he goes out and the gospels tell us. And then he overturns the tables and he, he drives people out. Is this profound cleansing, this act of righteous anger and power. And demonstrating his authority Uh, As the new temple, essentially. The place where forgiveness happens. The place where God's presence is. Like again, like this Old Testament prophet. And so, I I just want to now step back to him on on the Mount of Olives. That that scene. All I want to do today. I I just want us to see Jesus in all of his fullness. Okay? And all of who he is. Okay? He is prophesying judgment because of their hardness of heart. And yet... He's also weeping over the judgment that he's pronouncing. He's weeping over their hardness of heart. But his weeping doesn't keep him from pronouncing the judgment. And he's not pronouncing judgment from a place of detachment, emotional, you know, I I don't care. No, he's crying while he does it. Not only is he crying, but he's going to walk into the city. And he's going to give his life away for the very city that he is pronouncing judgment on. He's going to sacrifice life for anybody in the city. Who is willing to accept His offer of peace by going to the cross? Okay, that's a. I don't know how that strikes you. That is Jesus in all His fullness. That is a, a Jesus in all of His emotional complexity, in the complexity, the fullness, the the, the full spectrum of who He is. And. He is reflecting the heart of God who is also c- complex. It's a God who can pronounce and bring judgment in honesty and, and also weep because of the judgment that is coming because of the hardness of heart. And so I, I just want us to see that Jesus in all of his fullness. And I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, I don't think I've been too settled about But I've been coming back to this theme a lot lately of Jesus in, in all of his fullness because I think it's a message that the American church really needs to hear right now. Because I think what's happening is so often the churches are are settling for a very one-dimensional Jesus, a very narrow Jesus. So it's either, uh, and a narrow God. Oh, God is love, right? God is love. God is grace. God is good. God's got space. God's, do your thing. In the end, God is love. I mean, God is great. He's a nice guy, okay? There's that sort of one-dimensionality. Or you got another group of people. No, no, God is holy. And God is, that judgment's coming and, you know, God is the judge and, and you, you see these things. And what I just want to say this, uh, Jesus doesn't fit those categories. The biblical Jesus is so much more complex than all of that, so much fuller than all of that. And I mean the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. And I say that cause I don't, I don't mean just the Jesus that gets thrown around these days. I don't know if you know what I mean, but like some people say, well, I think Jesus is, you know, I think Jesus wouldn't do that. I'm like, well, what Jesus are you talking about? Like your Jesus or my Jesus? I was talking to someone between services. They're like, yeah, there's an Orange County Jesus. There's a Portland Jesus. You know, there's a Midwest Jesus. There's a Southern Jesus. There's all these Jesuses out there. But I'm talking about the biblical Jesus as best as we can to look at the the people, his best friends who wrote about him, which is really the only access to the historical Jesus we have. The biblical Jesus will not be reduced to these categories. He's complex. He is, there's a fullness to who he is. That's all I want to say today. (laughs) I want us to see that. Um, John Piper, I, I think, says it really well. He says, Jesus unites in himself so many qualities that in other people are contrary to each other. I think that's so true. Jesus is able to unite in himself so many qualities that in other people would feel like contradictions would be contrary to each other. But he does, he unites these qualities of of grace and truth, of warmth and strength, of mercy and might, of you know, salvation and judgment. They're all part of the fully orbed reality of who he is. That complexity, which ultimately I think points us forward from 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 uh, uh Palm Sunday to Good Friday, and the cross, which is this very complex thing <laughs> you know the cross uh, what we 're going to what we 're going to really focus on this week it it 's not one dimensional, and what I love is you actually it's literally two dimensional. (laughs) You get a a vertical beam and a a horizontal beam, but you, it, it, it it is severe and it's harsh and it's bloody and it's gruesome. And you're like, really? Like, God, can't you just like forgive people? Like why, why this? It's, it's just severe, but it's also grace and, and merciful. And this beautiful picture of, of sacrificial love. The sacrificial love of Jesus to give his life for us. The sacrificial love of his father to offer his son on behalf of us. It's it's complex. It's all of that. And we're complex people. (laughs) We're complicated. And it is a gospel that is true to who we are. And is true to who our Savior is. You've heard me say this a lot. I love this phrase. There is no refuge from the king. Okay, that's one aspect. But there is always refuge in the king. That's what you see in this scene. That's the Jesus scene. There's no refuge. You cannot escape this king. But there is refuge in him. And he longs to gather us together. He longs for people to turn from their their pride, their self-centered ways, to turn towards him. So that's what I have for you on this Palm Sunday. No... uh, great principles for living. But I want to say this, simply this. Behold your king today on this Palm Sunday. Behold your king, this man weeping over the city. Behold this man pronouncing judgment on the city. Behold this man walking into the city to offer his life for the life of the city. Behold your king on Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, today on this Palm Sunday, this beginning of Easter week, we want to acknowledge that you are so much bigger. That you're so much more glorious than the images we might construct for you. And and we confess that our worship of you, just like the worship of the crowds on that day 2000 years ago, is is so it's uh, so imperfect and it and it's not based on full understanding of who you are. And it's often so laced with our own personal desires and hopes and agendas. And yet you receive it all. And so, Lord, we just say, show us your glory. You know, continue to open our eyes to the wonder and the, the beauty of who you are, the complexity, the, the right kind of complexity of, of who you are. Lord, as, as we just picture you Looking over the city with this heart of compassion as your followers, Lord, would you would you give us that heart of compassion uh, for the world? Would you fill us with the hearts that break uh, for the things that your heart breaks for that would have compassion on on this world and all its brokenness and all of its beauty Lord, I, I confess the the limitations of my own heart as i um, it's hard for me to be moved to tears uh, like you were moved to tears as I consider others and their needs. Uh, it's so much easier to remain uh, in a mode of self-protection and just kind of going about my life and um, just trying to make sure I get my things done. It's, it's hard to have a heart that's open enough to that. And, um, and we confess where our hearts aren't open to that. But give us your heart. As we um, look at your glory, would you change us into your image through your spirit? And Lord, today, I also pray that each of us in our own ways, that we would accept your terms of peace, that we would accept your offer of peace, wherever there's a hardness of heart in us, like those leaders of that day, wherever there's areas in our lives where we're still just kind of running from you, or we're, 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 we know we're keeping you out, we're just not willing to, to give you that part of us. Lord, would your spirit soften us. Would we stop running or even just facing the other direction? Would we turn to you? Would you convince us that the minute we turn to you, the minute we surrender things to you, you're there with open arms like this mother hen who just longs to gather her chicks and protect them. That's, that's your heart for us. And so would we receive your offer of peace in, in areas of our lives? Like, like an army accepting terms of peace, would we... Would we lay down our weapons, we lay down our pride and our defenses, and would we accept peace and enjoy that peace with you that comes through your sacrifice? So Lord, we, this day is ultimately for you, and uh, we want to celebrate you. We want to be changed to become more and more like you. Help us to do that even as we now sing and worship you in song. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.